0: You're listening to audio from Christ Community Church in Fishers, Indiana. Our mission is to develop disciples of Jesus to impact the world. If you'd like to find out more information about us or donate to our ministry, please visit us at our website at cccfishers.org. Thanks for joining us.
1: I thought I'd have to choose between an IT degree and certifications until I found WGU. There I earned both through one program. WGU prepared me to earn certs from CompTIA and others at no extra cost. WGU IT bachelor's and master's degrees have no set class times. Rather, students progress at their pace, completing as many courses as they can each six-month term. I graduated faster, and you could too. Learn more at wgu.edu.
0: Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without for all the resources you need this election season and beyond visit
1: pro.stateaffairs.com slash I N that's pro.stateaffairs.com slash I
0: also want to preface before we read before I start the sermon that uh I believe today I'll have ample opportunity to step on, I think, everyone's toes at some point during this sermon. So if you want to put some shoes on, just get ready for that. I I fully expect that to happen this morning. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Stop there for just a moment. If you were to travel about 30 kilometers southeast of Rome, there's a small town there named Lanuvium. And in Lanuvium, you're going to find, or at least there was, a temple to Antonius. Now, there's a whole backstory to Antonius, but I don't have time to get into that. On the wall to the temple, there's a marble plaque with an inscription of the constitution of the association of Diana and Antonius. Now, this association is what is known as a Collegium. Now, Collegiums were a society that they, they, they had some kind of political recognition. like they were a formal group, kind of kind of like a 501C3, but not, not even that official, much more informal than that. Uh, but this particular Collegium. Was a burial society, which was common for these collegiums during the early parts, or during this time of the Roman Empire. Now, to become a member, all of that, we know how one became a member, particularly of how this collegium, but how they would do it for other colosseums like it. And in the inscription on that marble plaque on the Temple Tantonius is the requirements for becoming a member. And it simply was, one had to read through the Constitution and understand what they were committing themselves to it. They had to adhere to all the rules of the association, and then they had to pay an entry fee plus monthly dues. In return, members would be able to come to a monthly meeting, and as part of the monthly meeting, they would be able to enjoy fellowship, they would be able to network, there would be good food, and there would be good wine, and then the big thing, the big reason for joining this particular Collegium was that uh, they would, uh, if you were to die, they would take care of the funeral cost and all of the arrangements would be taken care of. So think of it sort of like the rotary, a rotary club with funerals, okay? Now, the reason I bring this up is... When the church began, and as it began to spread throughout the Roman Empire, many Romans simply looked at the church as one of these kinds of collegiums. It was an association of people who came together, who enjoyed food, and then who looked after the needs of others. But there were some distinct differences between the church and these collegiums. Whereas the collegium was relatively easy to enter as long as you had the money to do so, the church was extremely difficult. To enter the church, there was a requirement of significant amount of times where you submitted yourselves to the, dis- to the elders' teaching and to their discipline so that you could be formed into a person who was ethically and morally ready to be a part of the church. So, so notice the, so that right there, there's already a distinction, right? You couldn't just join the church and then you were formed. You were formed and then you would join the church if you were deemed ready. But there was no financial requirement like with the Collegium. Rich could join and poor could join. And the fact that you had this diversity within the church is one of the things that set it apart from these other associations throughout the Roman Empire. And it's what attracted people to it. And here at the end of Acts chapter 4, Luke gives us yet another account, a very similar account to the end of chapter 2. We get a picture of the church in its unified state. It's the church that we hope for. It's the church that isn't just attractive to those in the Roman Empire at the turn of the first century, but it's attractive to us as well throughout the community. There is not a needy person. What I love about what it says in Acts chapter 4 here is that the power of the Spirit was so present among them that there was not a needy person. It wasn't just that the power was so present that there were all these miracles and signs and these wonders. It was the power was so present, the Spirit was moving with such force that nobody was needy. Those who had land or money would sell them. And would take the proceeds from that sale and they would lay it down at the disciples' feet, which was a symbolic way of saying that they relinquished control. They relinquished control of their things. They relinquished control of their money. They relinquished control of their lives. They relinquished their control of their desires about how this money should be used. And they allowed the dividing up of those, that money and those resources to be determined by the disciples. It's this beautiful picture, this powerful picture, and it's animated by the Spirit of God in the lives of the people. But then things take a turn, and that's where we get Acts chapter 5, and Monty is going to read for us Acts chapter 5, the first 11 verses.
1: Acts 5, 1 through 11. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events.
0: Now, I'll be honest. I find this passage extremely uh, troubling. It's... It's reminiscent of all of the Old Testament passages of killing and God's anger. And it's hard for me to reconcile these stories with a God who is slow to anger and full of mercy. God in this passage doesn't come across to me as just. A penalty of death for lying and lying about not giving all of the money, right? Like these people gave a lot of money and yet they didn't, just, they gave, they didn't give all of it and they lied about that. But death for that crime doesn't seem to fit. It feels, it feels excessive. It feels petty on God's part, to be honest. And if I'm just taking a simple reading of the text, if, I, if I'm being completely honest about what hits me upon that simple reading of the text, it doesn't make me love God anymore. It makes me fear God. And some would say that, that that's the point. That, that the point of this story of Ananias and Sapphira is to remind us that God is still very much God. And we should take lying and other moral offenses very, very seriously. Because the wages of sin is death. And that's not a, that's not a, a hyperbolized death. It's not a, 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 a figurative death. It's a literal death. The wages of sin is death. So be careful, little tongue, what you say. But I wonder if that, that kind of almost flippant response, like it, it's true, it is true, all of that is true, but it, it sort of brushes past the story and the complexities of the story. I, I wonder if that kind of response doesn't reduce the text and flatten it out and minimize the opportunities that we have to be surprised that even in the midst of this violence and even in the midst of this, this seemingly unjust situation, even in the midst of the confusion that this brings up, that there's opportunities for us to find God, and not just find God, but to find the God who is love in the midst of this text. Maybe our desire to offer the quick response is more about our anxieties and, and the discomfort that we feel with this text. Maybe our explanations rush us past a text that we as a community are meant to wrestle with. Maybe God is trying to expose something in us in this text. And we can we can maybe almost feel it. Yes, there's the violence and there's the uncomfortableness and there's the troublingness of it, but there's there's something that that connects with who we are and what's going on inside of us and 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 the flippant response is just, just a rushing past that. You see, I can't help but wonder if these, these kinds of texts aren't meant to push us deep into ourselves and make us wrestle with our own idols. And I think there's actually three idols that if we sit with the text and we unpack it and we, we stay with the tension of, of the violence, if we can't find three idols that maybe hit pretty close to home for us, let's do that the first one the idol of redemptive violence so this is the idea that violence can be used for good right that violence brings about something right and just and violence can even be just and right right and there's the truth of the matter is that we live in a complex world, but there is a way in which we can glorify violence because of our belief that it can be rede- like redemptive, and that maybe even necessary. And I can't help but wonder if this text isn't challenging that in some way. Let me, let me, let me show you how I arrived here. We've got to think of a, a, remind ourselves of a story in the Old Testament. In Joshua chapter 7, Joshua and the Israelites have gone into Canaan and they're beginning to attack cities and and take these cities as they move into the the promised land. And one of the cities that they're preparing to attack is the city of Ai. Now Joshua sends out some spies to the city before they go and attack it. The spies go, they observe what's going on in the city, and they come back and they say like, hey, we don't have to send the whole army. Like it's a small group of people. We should be able to take this one pretty easily. So Joshua sends out seven or three thousand Israelites to to go attack the city of Ai and the people are able to defend off those 3,000 soldiers and they, the, the soldiers retreat. And so Joshua, upset and discouraged by this defeat, tears his clothes and then lays prostrate on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. And as Joshua is there grieving the loss, God speaks to Joshua and says, Listen, the reason you lost is because Israel has sinned. Someone in the camp has taken something that was devoted to me and has kept it for themselves. So Joshua goes throughout the camp and begins to look for what this is. And he comes to a man named Achan. And Joshua confronts Achan, and Achan confesses to have taken some of the plunder that was designated for the Lord, some gold and silver, and he's put it underneath his tent. And as punishment, Achan, the stuff he stole, and his sons and his daughters are stoned by the community of Israel. In fact, in the text it says that there were so many stones heaped upon him that created a great pile that exists there to this day. Now, in my retelling of the story, you've probably already picked up on the similarities between Joshua 7 in the story of Achan and Acts chapter 5 in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Achan withheld what belonged to the Lord in a similar way to what Ananias and Sapphira withheld from the Lord. But there is a key difference. In the story of Achan, the judgment and the punishment was carried out by the people. People threw the stones. The people killed Achan and his sons and his daughters. But who kills Ananias and Sapphira? God. Now, Peter prophesies that their death would occur, but he isn't cursing them, and he's not condemning them. Rather, it's it's as if... Peter is seen into the future, much like I see into the future where I'm blowing up the balloon all afternoon. Like he's seen into the future and he sees that as a result of this, there's punishment coming and he prophesies what that is, but he's not condemning, and he's not cursing. The one who enacts the punishment, the one who brings it about, and the one who's responsible for the death of Ananias and Sapphira is God. And that's different than what happened with Achan, where it was the people and it may seem like a small difference. It may seem like we're splitting hairs, but it's, I think it's significant. Because what God is doing is saying, I am taking away from my people the act of punishment and the killing. My people are not to repay evil with evil. My people are not going to take only what I can give, life. No longer are my people going to be able to justify killing another person in the name of Jesus. And to try to do so requires all kinds of mental gymnastics. As Willie James Jennings so aptly put it, I mean, it's just beautiful. He says this, there will be no stoning in the community of Christ. We are the people of resurrection, not death. And this matters, and we ought to reflect on this point. We ought to reflect on the ways in which we tacitly endorse violence and are okay with violence. It's easy for us as Christians to say that we value life, and it's easy for us to point to all the work that we have done to lift up the dignity that belongs to each person. We can point to the work that we've done around abortion. We can we can uh, point to the Apostle Paul and say, "Look at God could redeem and use this man who oversaw the murder, and we believe that God can redeem and oversee all, or redeem and use all people." And we can point to these things as evidence that we do. Hold strongly to the dignity of life and the possibility of redemption. But, the number one group in America who endorses the death penalty for those convicted of murder is white Christians. And the people who are least likely to support life in jail without parole are that same group. The group most likely to agree with the statement, the biggest problem with the death penalty is that it is not used enough, is white Christians. And in fact, the more often you go to church, the more likely it is that you are to support the death penalty. Which seems inconsistent with what we believe about life, what we believe about dignity, And what we believe about the possibility of redemption. And I can't help but wonder if that inconsistency comes from a subtle idolatry of redemptive violence. This idea that the only way that you can really combat violence is with violence. The belief that our enemies may use violence... And so we should use violence, and they're going to use it for evil, but the way we're going to use it is we're going, to be, we're going to use it for rights. We're going to use it rightly, and we're going to use it for good. The idea that violence will mend and repair something that has been broken. But here in this text with Ananias and Sapphira where God does not allow the community to be the ones responsible for the stoning of Ananias and Sapphira but he himself takes it upon himself. It says that God says the days of my people enacting violent punishment is over. No more stones. Only I, the giver of life, will take life. And if we just focus on The violence of the text, if we brush over it with this, we should just fear God and that's the point of it. We can miss out on our own proclivity to justify and support violence in all of these different ways. The the belief that we have that violence is something that we maybe should take on or can be used in the name of Jesus if we sit with the text and we sit with the violence and the discomfort and we see what is happening and we see the subtle way in which God is taking violence away from the people and saying, no more, then it opens up the possibility for us to question all of our assumptions and celebrations of violence. We begin to loosen our grip on the idol of redemptive violence. Or there's this another idol, the second one, the idol of self-protection. The story of Ananias and Sapphira rises and fall on their decision to withhold from the community of faith. Right? Now, nothing required them to sell their property and then give the proceeds to the disciples. The association of the church didn't have that in any constitution that that is something like, if you're rich and you've got these things, you've got to do that. It never said that. And yet they did it. They sold their property and they withheld some of the proceeds and they lied about it. Why? What would motivate them to do that? One argument that I find very compelling is that in the church, all of the normal hierarchies of society were being thrown out and being subverted. Right? So you think about what gave people privilege and prestige in society? Now that doesn't matter in the church. Now there's rich and poor, there's Jew and Gentile, there's slave and free, there's male and female. There's this shifting within the community of people away from a society structured around hierarchy to one that is much more egalitarian. And so withholding money isn't just about selfishness on the part of Ananias and Sapphira. It's about a resistance to this new order where you aren't given as much prominence just because you're rich. I mean, think if you're a rich person. I mean, we, we have this even in our day where if you have wealth and you have financial means that you're given a deference by others. And then if you're generous with that, well, it's right for that to be celebrated. But there's a, there's a prestige and there's an honor that comes when you do that. There's plaques and monuments and recognition and all of that. But in this community of faith where that's not required and it's not expected and that's not the way in which one gains recognition, like all of a sudden all of that is upside down. You see, the way in which the way in which you are recognized in the community of the church is by your commitment to the church. And so someone who's poor Someone who's a slave and someone who's a female, those who are typically on the bottom rungs of society, now can be raised up because they're committed, they're bought in, they're wholesale a part of this new order. And if you're used to having privilege and prominence and prestige, well, you want that. And how do I get that? Well, I have to show that I'm committed. I have to show that that, that, that I'm bought into this, even if you aren't. And so maybe, maybe all of this stems from the fact that Ananias and Sapphira aren't really bought into this new order. They're not really bought into the community. So they they hold back. They hold back a bit of their money. They hold back their intents. They hold back their unity. They hold back their commitment. They hold back their sins. They hold back their faith. They hold back their selves at the expense of the community. How many of us hold back on some level when we come to church? I'll be honest, I do. I hold back a part of myself because I've had, my advantage taken, uh, I've had my trust taken advantage of. I've unintentionally said the wrong thing or with the wrong tone and gotten myself into trouble and it's hurt. And there's practical reasons why I don't share all of who I am. And a lot of it has to do with self-protection. And I justify it. It makes sense. This is common sense. This is good practice. And Ananias and Sapphira could have made that exact same argument, right? It makes sense for us to hold back some of the money and not give all of the money. Because if we gave all of the money, then we ourselves might find ourselves in need and somebody else is going to have to sell their property. So we'll give some, but we're going to keep some just to make sure that our future is safe, that our future is protected, but to be a part of the community of God that is built on unity and mutuality and the meeting of the needs of the na- our neighbors, we must confront and put to death our idol of self-protection. And, and here's why. Faith requires a willingness to risk. And self-protection won't let you risk. And if we just rush past this text because it makes us uncomfortable, if we just make it about a lie or if we make it about God's justice or to fear God, then we may miss out on what the text is saying to us about our own proclivity to hold back, not to bring our whole selves to not live by faith and to be dominated by a desire to protect ourselves in the moment or in the future. And then there's a third idol. This is the one where, if I haven't already stepped on your toes, probably going to do it right here. It's the idol of the couple. The conspiracy to deceive the community of believers and to test God began in a conversation between a husband and a wife. And this isn't the first couple to test God. Sin entered the world as a result of a husband and a wife not trusting God and conspiring to take things into their, their own hands. In our culture, the couple is held up as, the high, as almost the highest good. It's an ultimate right? It's the place where we find life. It's the place where our needs are met. It's the place where our hopes and dreams become a reality. In the space of this couple, we, we find security and, and we're told that all of our needs are going to be met right there. But what we rarely, if ever, talk about is how couples may actually work against the goal of the church, Speak to those. Just have conversations with those who are single in the church, and I think you'll hear stories about finding it difficult to belong, of sometimes feeling like or even being told that the ministries of the church aren't for them, about feeling pressure to get married. You can hear stories about how hard it is to build relationships in the church, and part of the reason that that is—it's not the total reason—but part of the reason is the couple, because it's as if each couple, because it becomes its own secret club, right? It's it's the place where ultimately intimacy and fidelity and commitment exist, and because those things exist in the space of the couple, they don't they don't take root in the church. But even even the intimacy and the fidelity and the commitment of the couple is. Is really an illusion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says it like this. He says, Christ, the mediator, stands between son and father, between husband and wife, between individual and nation, whether they can recognize him or not. There is no way from us to others than the path through Christ his word and our following him. Immediacy is a delusion. Anytime a community hinders us from coming before Christ as a single individual, anytime a community lays claim to immediacy, it must be hated for Christ's sake. Now, I really appreciate what Bonhoeffer says here about a community because he doesn't make a community just this big group of people. But he reduces it down. He like broadens it out. It can be between father and son and husband and wife. It can be between an individual and a nation, right? There's all of these spaces in which we are relating to another person or another group. And he kind of says like all of these are communities. And, and then he says like in each of those spaces between father and son and husband and wife and individual and nation, Christ is the mediator. And what he's saying here is between me and another, whoever that other might be, Christ is right there. And, and, and somehow Christ is helping us to connect and come to that person. He's mediating us to them and them to us. So, he, so here's what it looks like. In order for me to come to that person over there, I must first come to Christ. And in coming to Christ, I have to die to myself. I have to confess my sins. I have to take off my old self and put on my new self. I have to embody the fruit of the Spirit. I have to seek to love my neighbor as myself. And then now. Now that Christ has done all of that in me, he's mediated all of that work in me, now I come to you. And Bonhoeffer says, there's no other way for the follower of Jesus to come to another person, regardless of who that person is. No no other way for a person to come to a community, regardless of what that community is, whether it's the church or whether it's a nation. Immediacy, this me directly to another person, is a delusion. In any community that lays claim to immediacy, that says or functions as if Christ is not necessary, that it is a relationship that comes first, must be hated for Christ's sake. And far too often, we treat marriages and the couple as a relationship of immediacy. That we imagine that we can come directly, me to my spouse and Christ doesn't have to be in between us. Yeah, Christ may be around us. We may be driving in the car and Jesus may be in the back seat. But Jesus is much more a third wheel to the party than than an absolute necessity for our coming together. And as a result, when, when marriages become this source of immediacy, they become an excuse to hold back from the community of the church, which ultimately is Christ's body. But our marriages were never meant to be the sole place of intimacy. Because those who are married do not belong just to one another. In our baptism, we belong to Christ and to his church. And if we just rush past the story of Ananias and Sapphira because it makes us uncomfortable and it challenges our notions of God Then, when we don't press into the text itself we may never get to see the power of the couple to resist the community of the church that Jesus is building. We may never reflect on our own lives and maybe the ways in which we've placed our coupledness Above our commitment to the church. Yeah. And God exposes that. And He says, Yes, your marriage is important, and yes, it matters, and yes, you pay attention to it and all of that, but it is not an idol. And it ought not be one. And the violent texts of the Bible are hard. They are confusing, they are off putting. They challenge us morally and ethically, and maybe that 's the point. Maybe their violence isn 't just about the acts that happen in the text. maybe their violence is is ultimately about the violence that needs to be done to our idols maybe the violence of the text is meant to jar us to wake us up and to pay attention to the things that otherwise we ignore gloss over pretend aren't really there maybe they're meant to help us see the ways in which violence exists in us and to see the the idols and the ways of being that do violence to our relationship with God and our relationship to the church and our relationship with others and our relationship to ourselves. Maybe if we press deep into these violent texts and we sit with them and we are made uncomfortable with them maybe maybe we're opened up to a, a new way of being. And we submit ourselves to the upside-down order of the one who redeems the world, not through the violence that he does, but through the violence that is done to him on the cross. And in suffering, the violence of a sinful people absorbs all the violence into himself to say, there is a new kingdom in your midst, an upside-down kingdom, a new way of being for my followers. I have taken all of the violence into myself so that you can give it up. And so you can put to death your idols. And you can find peace. The peace that I alone will bring. And in that, we find rest. We find hope. We find the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, examining our own hearts can sometimes be difficult work. In fact, I think it's the hardest work that we can do to see ourselves clearly and to be honest with ourselves and with others about the things that our heart is insane and encouraging us and and the motivations that rise up above us. It's why it is said in your word that that the heart is deceitful above all else. And yet we know that we have to press deep into our hearts and examine our idols. There's another place in your text where it says, that if my people want to hear from me, they want to experience my nearness and my presence, then have them first deal with the idols that exist in their hearts. And so, Lord, we we come to your text knowing that it is a double-edged sword that will expose us and to help us to see ourselves more clearly. And I pray that we would allow the Spirit to do its surgical work to, to reveal to us what we could not see and what we did not know about ourselves and about our allegiances. And I pray that we would give them over to you and lay them down at your feet, submitting them to you so that we might experience the kingdom of God in its fullness in our life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.